Welcome to Telegeography Explains the Internet, the show that explores the business behind all of the ways humans stay connected around the world. I'm your host, Greg Bryan, and today we are continuing with our five-part series explaining exactly how data actually moves around the world. If you didn't listen to the first two episodes in this series, go back and check out what is the internet and what is the transport network first, as each episode builds on the previous one. Once again, rather than my normal freeform interview format, I'm going to enlist the help of a colleague, but mostly go solo. Now we know most of our audience works in the telecom industry or directly with networks in some fashion. But our goal here is to pull back from many of your day-to-day jobs and highlight the nuts and bolts of how the whole industry works together. My hope is that you save these episodes for reference or even pass them on to colleagues or friends that want to know more about telecoms or how the internet works. Today, we're on number three. What are data centers? We explained in episode two how the internet is made of transport networks that carry data over mostly fiber optic wires distributed around the world. And in the episode before that, we talked about how the internet is really a network of networks operated by thousands of mostly private companies. But what we haven't talked about yet is exactly how and where those networks meet and exchange traffic with each other and access their destinations like databases, applications, and the content that we all consume on the internet. So first we'll talk about co-location. Long ago in the before time, before there was a cloud and neutral data centers, there were co-location centers. In fact, this history goes back really to the early days of what we commonly refer to as the internet now. As the legend goes, back in 1992, several network providers in Northern Virginia got together over beers and agreed to connect their networks together to exchange traffic along the lines of how the federal government had already done so. The result of that conversation was the legendary May East, and is one of the reasons Northern Virginia is still a key internet exchange and data center hub. This concept spread rapidly and eventually spawned an entire industry of co-location sites where carriers could meet, set up a point of presence or POP, and exchange traffic with each other. One of the earliest entries to this new market was a company called Equinix, founded in 1998, which is still by a pretty large margin the most ubiquitous provider of co-location and data center space. This company helped spur the change from carrier interconnection to carrier neutral access in the data center. Going back to May East and others, the original idea was to provide a place with power and security for networks to meet and exchange traffic. The purpose of these locations shifted, however, as cloud computing began to take off in the 2000s and especially 2010s. While we still have co-location sites, network access points or NAPs, and carrier hotels, which primarily exist to facilitate traffic exchange, with a rapid uptake of cloud services in the past decade, we often now talk about data centers. What we refer to as data centers would fall under, for our purposes, three basic types. 
On-premises data centers. First, corporate data centers are simply where a corporation stores its servers for databases, computing, and application. This is when they store these facilities on their own property with no other company sharing the space. Neutral data centers are facilities that are open to many corporate and telecom customers. Corporations store data there, use compute resources, or connect with their cloud and network providers. Telcos exchange traffic with each other here and connect with cloud service providers. The third and final category is cloud providers, or hyperscalers as they are often called, often have their own data centers where they host their customers in a private facility accessible only to them. Features of data centers. While much of what we have talked about in this series is abstract, or at least likely difficult to envision for many listeners, data centers are something that you can physically experience and have likely seen in movies, if not in real life. The actual buildings that data centers are in are often large warehouse-like structures with no windows, particularly in the suburbs. Downtown, they might be in what otherwise looks like a normal office building, but again with few, if any, windows and very, very tight security. The key features that make a piece of real estate a data center are 24-hour-a-day, 7-day-a-week, 365-day-a-year security, huge cooling units to deal with all of the heat these electronics create, backup power generators, and massive amounts of fiber coming into the building, often from dozens of different providers or possibly more. Finally, the image many of you may have is of long hallways of stacked computer servers on racks, connected with often colorful and hopefully neatly organized cables. What happens in data centers? Now let's talk about what really goes on inside the data center. Our first category is traffic exchange. So the purpose of colo facilities and carrier hotels, naps, internet exchanges, etc., is to, as it sounds, exchange traffic. This is where carriers meet and peer or by transit, like we explained in the first episode of this series. Carriers also set up something called NNIs or network network interfaces to ensure the smooth transfer of data from one carrier network to another. Carriers connect with their customers, each other, and cloud providers via a cross-connect, which used to have to be agreed upon and set up individually between parties. One innovation that came along in the 2010s was something called Meet Me Rooms. For this, I'm getting a little out of my depth, so I'm going to invite telegeography resident data center expert, John Yembo, to tell us a bit more about that. Welcome to the show, John. Thanks for having me, Greg. It's good to be here. All right. So, John, I wanted to have you interject here to my monologue about data centers because I know enough to be dangerous, but you are the real expert. Um, so the, the first thing that I want to touch on are the meet me rooms. So we've been uh, I've been explaining co-location and interconnection. What is a meet me room and how did they come about in the industry? So a meet me room, if we think about 
uh, say, think about a system of roadways and you have intersections or traffic circles, the meet me room you could think of in the same way. Uh, all these networks throughout the data center and there might be multiple data halls within the data center, but, but all these networks are interconnecting with each other physically via cross connects. And so to reduce the snarl of thousands of cables going across multiple data halls to interconnect individual servers, uh, you have a meet me area where they, uh, multiple networks can port into the same room and then uh, meet major partners within that room. So the, the big anchor carriers or, or content providers or others that they need to access or, or uh, internet exchanges, you can meet them in that room. Uh, so that's the primary purpose to kind of reduce all that uh, all that traffic of, uh, of cross connects going through the data halls. Both in a physical sense that you're pulling cat five, six cables around all over the place, but also in the economic sense, you're reducing friction and transaction costs, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yes, yes. Yeah, porting into one place to, to access multiple partners versus having to do individual cross connects across multiple places to access multiple partners. Yes. Right. So if we envision that, um, the, the spaghetti bowl of cross connects, um, is that how they used to do it before Mimi Rooms? And, and do they still have reason to do cross connects that way sometimes now? Yeah, they absolutely still do individual cross connects as well. So if you have private peering um, or private interconnection for transit to uh, an anchor carrier, there are still plenty of reasons to do individual cross connects. This just mm -hmm. sort of uh, this sort of complements those individual connections with uh, a more efficient option as well. So typically, um, if you have uh, multiple connections, multiple smaller connections, you might want to go to a meet me room. So mm -hmm. for, for smaller capacity requirements to an IX, where you might want to interconnect with multiple partners or providers uh, uh, or, or lesser or carriers where you're less dependent, you might want to go through a meet me room. But typically as the requirements get bigger, you offload some of that capacity or all of it and do private private peering with that partner Got on an so, individual cross connect. So like carrier ABC and ISP <clears throat> XYZ have so much traffic exchange with each other that there's no need to do that in the context of a meet me room. They know they right. need to directly interconnect with each other. Yes, that's right. Yes. Excellent. Okay, thanks for that, John. I'm gonna have John pop in a few more times uh, to flesh out our knowledge about data centers from a real expert. But now on to space and power leasing. Beyond exchanging traffic, these facilities also lease space for servers. The past couple of decades has seen the massive explosion of cloud computing. In fact, our next episode is all about cloud, so I won't go too much into detail here. But suffice it to say, when we're talking about the nebulous, pun intended, cloud, it is located in a physical location, and that is these data centers. So for whatever purpose, one of the key ways data centers make money is renting space to house servers or renting compute space on servers themselves. Here again to explain that is John. 
All right, John, welcome back. Thanks again for joining us. First, I want to talk about how real estate companies that weren't involved in the telecom space um, got into the data center market. Uh, why, why did that happen? Well, so originally you have carriers interconnecting with each other in their own co-location facilities mm -hmm. or uh, networks dependent on carriers having to connect to those individual carrier facilities. So, of course, the natural inefficiency there is if you have multiple carriers that you're dependent on, you have to go to their individual facilities to interconnect with them. Right. Uh, the real estate companies, these carrier neutral providers saw an opportunity to uh, provide a single space where everyone can come and connect with multiple partners and to reduce costs in that sense, co-location costs, cross-connect costs, going to meet new rooms within uh, carrier neutral spaces. So um, they capitalized on that opportunity. And frankly, there was no looking back after that point mm -hmm. because that carrier neutral model became uh, prevalent in, across the entire industry, even for carriers that operated their own data centers. Once that carrier neutral model took root, uh, they realized that in order to retain customers' uh, stickiness within their own facilities, they had to allow some level of uh, competition to enter their facility too, so that, carrier, that their partners, their customers could access multiple providers out of the same facility. Right. So, so to put it back in economic terms, there's, there's economies of scale, again, where it it makes more sense if I have to connect with a dozen other fiber providers, just makes so much more sense to do that in one location that's sharing the, the power and the backup generation and the cooling rather than me doing that at my facility and having them come to me and they having other comes to them and all that sort of thing. That's, that's absolutely it. So then you really touched on this, but let's drill down uh, specifically on what do we mean by a neutral facility in the DC colo space, what what would be an example of a not neutral facility, and then how is that different from what a neutral facility is? A not neutral facility would be one where, say, a carrier, a major carrier, has their own data center and they're running their own private applications out of that data center, but they're also providing some level of co-location for their clients within that site. Mm -hmm. And you can only access that carrier and your services with that carrier out of that site. That would be a not neutral. And, and how common is that still out there? Do we still see that? Uh, it's, it's still there to a, a limited degree, but we're not seeing that nearly as much as we used to. Mm -hmm. uh, even carriers have realized that they need to adopt some level of carrier neutrality. Typically, it won't be as uh, as large a carrier neutral environment as a pure carrier neutral data center operator would provide where they would just allow any number of internet exchanges, cloud on-ramps, um, multiple carriers of any kind to enter the facility. Uh, but, but on some level, you would have even with carrier data centers, you would have a degree of carrier neutrality where they would have like a couple of uh, global, regional, and or local competitors in the mm -hmm. building so that their customers can access those as well as their own services. So let me make sure I, I understand and remember this correctly. So there used to be some uh, data center brands, Savvis is one that comes to mind, that were owned by telcos, right? Yes. So that would have been a neutral facility 
owned by a telco and there's some limitation there. But now when we mean neutral facility, we usually mean not owned by a, a backbone provider at all. Yes. Well, technically, the carrier neutral designation would go to anyone who's allowing multiple carriers to enter the building. For our purposes within our, our within our data center research, we still separate out carrier facilities from carrier neutral facilities. Um, that's for a couple of reasons. It helps us with how we estimate capacity in a given market because carrier facilities tend to be uh, smaller. They tend to be more prevalent across uh, multiple areas, uh, some of which are, are more obscure, mm-hmm. um, whereas carrier like tier three fac- markets and that. Yes, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. correct. Whereas carrier neutral facilities tend to be more anchored in larger markets, tend to be larger facilities. But that carrier neutrality uh, um, still uh, tends to be practiced across the industry, even amongst uh, carriers, telcos themselves. The interesting thing about uh, what you had just mentioned, though, with like Savis, for example, and um, back in the early 2010s, a bunch of uh, several major carriers decided that they needed to acquire carrier neutral providers in order to provision carrier neutral services themselves. Right. And that was an example of that, where CenturyLink, now Lumen, um, bought the, the carrier neutral provider Savis in order to uh, to deliver true carrier neutral services. Um Zayo got into the carrier neutral business. Um, uh, Verizon bought Terramark, mm-hmm. um, which was a very prominent carrier neutral provider. Uh, and there were a couple of other examples as well. But what happened a couple of years down the line was that uh, these same providers and others decided that um, many of them decided that the carrier neutral data center business was just not their primary wheelhouse. So right. they turned around and offloaded these assets again and decided to focus on their core competency network services and uh, allow the carrier neutral providers who were just focused on data center services to provide those services. So today we have a whole lot of carrier neutral providers out there that used to be owned by carriers. So companies right. like Evoke and Evocative, Syrian, Sixterra, Databank, Tierpoint, all of these used to be owned by carriers. Interesting. All right. So that tees me up perfectly for my next question too, which is that now it seems like we're going in the other direction. There are once pure play neutral providers like Equinix that have built out backbone networks and are yeah. selling yes. uh, carrier-like service. Can you take me through that and, and, and why they ended up uh, bu- building these fabric services? Yeah, uh, and that's that's been an interesting development too. And, and Equinix is probably the one of the more prominent examples of that, but by no means the only one or the first one to do this. Um, uh, Tierpoint and, and uh, DKICS on the internet exchange side and uh, a number of other providers, um, Digital Realty um, is is starting to build out this kind of fabric as well. Um, but a lot of these companies have done this. And um, I, I guess the simplest answer is that they, they, they aren't really offering traditional network services per mm-hmm. se, um, because it's certainly... It, this provisioning is in with their own walled gardens, intermeshing right. their own data centers. But on some level, it's it's uh, it's augmenting the connectivity available in the data centers with um, dedicated private capacity to access other markets, to access other providers, right. other other partners. So the upshot uh, is that, that yeah, 
as long as you're between Equinix <clears throat> facilities, you don't have to go purchase a wavelength from some other transport provider. You can just stay within the Equinix ecosystem, as it were. Yeah, on some level. Um, and But my understanding is that a lot of these uh, this provisioning is for is for um, uh, uh, temporary type usage um, or like or, on demand access, fabric, yeah, on demand fabric for access to uh, a, say a cloud region or in, in another in another market right. or something like that. So we're not we're not we're not talking about massive levels of capacity and lots of provisioning right. um, for for most of these data center operators that are doing this. They're they're only provisioning uh, you know, multiples of maybe 10 or 100 gig wavelengths. Um, and, and again, I mean, a lot of that is just kind of on demand. So it's, it. it's really not the same sort of use case as a traditional carrier mm-hmm. network. Yeah, that, that's an excellent clarification. It makes sense. All right. So the last thing I have in this section, John, is about the cloud providers themselves. Now, my next episode in this series is going to be all about cloud with our colleague, Patrick Christian. So not to get into the cloud business models or what they do themselves, but in insofar as cloud operators, sometimes known as hyperscalers, are in the data center business themselves, is that, so in other words, when we're talking about data centers, we're talking about these Equinixes of the world, neutral providers or carry-owned providers, but then there's this other category of data centers that are unique to individual hyperscalers? There are. Now, I wouldn't um, maybe clear, uh, um, characterize it as them being in the business of data center operations. Ah, good clarification. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. In the sense that they're using these data centers for their own uh, internal storage. Right. So they don't sell source. space and power Correct. to others or anything like that. Correct. Correct. That's that's it. So the <clears throat> typically the way this would work with a cloud provider, they'll have smaller on-ramp deployments within major carrier neutral uh, data centers in in hub metropolitan markets so that their customers can port into those to to those sites those on ramps and then get dedicated connectivity back to the services at their private cloud region data centers mm-hmm. and that that backhaul might be provisioned by the data center operator by carrier partners or by the cloud provider themselves. So in that sense, they're, they're, they're tethering customers from the co-location sites back to their own dedicated sites. And from there, they're, they, they, have, they have much larger facilities, perhaps a little further outside the, the metropolitan market where they can save a bit on cost. And, uh, and from there, they can provision their services back to the customers in the, in the denser uh, carrier neutral sites. So John, data centers, sometimes even just real estate companies have to make money doing this. How is it that they charge their customers and make money providing data center services? Sure. Uh, so on the simplest level, data center operators charge customers for space, for power, and for cross-connects. So there might, of course, be other services as part of the package, but that's those are the core components. And so when we talk about leasing, charging for data center leases, we're actually uh, talking and, and, and measure, measuring this in terms of power. And that may seem counter, counterintuitive because you see these 
uh, data halls of racks taking up physical space. But power is really the most expensive component here. And it's and the real the mm. real real estate is power within a, a confined space. So they will charge uh, a price per kilowatt for a for a uh, space within a rack or within right. a suite. Um, so that's the primary measure, and that's how they they primarily make their money is is charging per unit of power uh, within the confines of the space that they're renting. And also cross connects, which we talked about a little also bit cross before. Yes. So then. Then the question becomes, who uses these services? We've talked about carriers exchanging traffic with each other. Um, we've talked about uh, the hyperscalers getting their customers. Enterprises, I, I imagine, are in the data center directly themselves um, as well. Uh, how, how, do, how does that all look from the data center provider perspective? Yeah, so really any kind of network that needs uh, storage for uh, space, for security, and for interconnection would could be a potential customer within a data center and that's everyone from the carriers internet exchange providers cdns cloud application providers financial networks other types of enterprises um and you know ones that aren't in the telecom business at all but need server space and and things yeah absolutely absolutely Uh, and especially when we're thinking about larger enterprises that on some level are provisioning their own WAN infrastructure too. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they need their own physical nodes to interconnect their own uh, network assets as well. Um, one, other, one other thing I wanted to note that, um, that's been interesting in terms of the evolution of what the data center looks like. Um, you know, when, 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 when clouds started to become really big, um, the, the question that kind of got bandied about a, a, a bit was whether or not this would phase out co-location within the data centers and whether you'd start seeing fewer customers. Um, and really, we haven't seen that because mm. it, it may have changed the customer ecosystem to some degree as to who these who these customers are. But but really, like if you have smaller enterprises increasingly migrating to the cloud and and purchase and, and using cloud platforms to for their for their for their own network needs um, those cloud providers themselves have become increasingly the major co-location uh, right. clients right but 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 you still have big enterprises too and what we've typically found is that uh, when it comes to larger enterprises they're all doing a mix of um, public cloud private cloud and co-location so mm-hmm. so really you still have all these types of players within the data center Data center geography. Of course, always on our mind at Telegeography is why location matters in telecom. And this is certainly very true in the data center market. As John and I have mentioned, the data center market includes many real estate companies, not just telcos and IT companies. So of course, they have a handle on location, but often more in the traditional sense, like being downtown in a big city, or in an office park of a key suburb. However, geography is important to the functioning of the internet, which is one of the key things we want to get across in this series. Many people, even some in the industry, think of networks as flat. Once you get to the network, you're done. You're on the network. But of course, even though bits travel at nearly the speed of light, adding distance and hops 
introduces both the chance for more failures, dropped packets and traffic jams, but also increases latency and limits performance. So once again, John is going to join me to explain the geography of the data center market. All right, John, this is the, the last segment with you. Thank you so much for all this information. Um, of course, we are telegeography, so we have to talk about one of the key things we focus on, the geography of the data center market. I just want to first start with a basic question about how many data centers, what we would classify as a data center, are there in the world? Yeah, a very good basic question, but also a little complicated. Yeah, uh, of course. So, <laughs> uh, as we let's put it this way, we track fifty three hundred sites mm -hmm. around the world. Those are commercial data centers, um, and uh, but but you know the the data center market is so widely diffused across so many markets. It's certainly a lot more than that. If you include on premise sites, if you include private sites, uh, if you include uh, sites in really obscure markets, um, there are many more than that. But yeah, as far as commercial data centers and and, and the, the the key network nodes around the world, we've got fifty three hundred in our database. And I'm I'm not going to complicate things in this episode at all by talking about edge whatsoever, but maybe someday we'll do a whole episode <laughs> on edge together and, and, and define that, but we'll, we'll stick with this for now. Even that said, 5,300 strikes me as a very big number. Why are there so many? Well, if you think about the amount of traffic that's generated every year, that's stored um, all over the place. Anything that's ever been done on the internet, unless it's deleted, is stored somewhere in a data center. Right. And, you know, we're talking about the order of hundreds of exabytes being generated every single year. So actually, I mean, I think when you think about the sheer vastness of that, it's almost more surprising that there's so few data centers. It, it is. I can sort of more or less count them. I should have anticipated that and, and um, come up with this actual metric. But I remember reading something a few times about how there have been more words written by humans in like the last two years than there was in yes. all of previous human history or whatever it is. Yeah, right? I was so, trying to recall yeah, that, yeah. that uh, statistic myself, yeah. yes. Someone out there can, can know that we're saying something and, and Google it themselves, right? But um, all right, so all of that data has to have a place to sit, a place to be accessed. Um, access is the key thing that I wanna focus on here. How are those 5,300 data centers distributed globally? Where do we generally find them? So uh, they, they, they follow a pretty logical um, deployment uh, system of deployment uh, when you think about it. Um, they, they're typically going to be in these major centers of commerce and communications where we see lots of other activity happening. Um, they, 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 these are the nodes where that are that are where the where our core uh, communications are happening. So, you know, you think about um, the major East Coast West Coast markets in the U.S. Uh, the central markets like Chicago and Dallas, Asian markets like Hong Kong and Singapore, the flat markets in Europe. These are the places that data centers as networks and network traffic are typically concentrated. But from there, it radiates out. Um, so you have smaller secondary tertiary mm -hmm. markets that are dependent on those individual core hub nodes. Right. Um, and, and so you see kind of traffic radiating out from there. And, you know, telegeography has our old 
hubs and spokes model of how networks develop. And it's the exact same thing with the data centers. You have these hubs and from there you radiate out to these regional spokes um, that are all intermeshed, interdependent. So if, if you use the old airport model, if there's a, a large international airport, there's likely to be data centers now in that city, right? Yeah, absolutely. But that was not always the case. So I want to talk a little bit about um, how that has developed over time. Um, the, the internet, as I understand it, used to be very focused on a few markets in the West. Um, where, where do we see data centers first emerging and, and how have they spread to, to different markets over the past uh, 10 to 20 years? So <clears throat> it would have started with these these hub markets that I've just listed off, like those mm -hmm. markets specifically. Um, major U.S. markets like Northern Virginia, uh, New York, um, the Silicon Valley area were very early adopters of all of this. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the flat markets, Frankfurt, London, Amsterdam, Paris, and Europe, um, uh, the, the market flourished in those places very early on. Uh, Hong Kong, Singapore, Tokyo, and really those specific places um, is where uh, things kind so of. So there spread used to be a, a pretty small band of like financial and and commerce centers, and then data centers grew out to other markets fr from there. Yeah, and, and and specifically when we're talking about the interconnection market, um, and certainly for individual applications, you would have found major data centers outside these areas even early on. Mm -hmm. But uh, but by and large, that that interconnection market and the data center market would have would have uh, grown out from these types of places. Now, as far as how it's developed over time, you see uh, more and more secondary markets being developed, and and really this this has to do with um, uh, gaining more access, getting more access to higher end applications to more users, right. um, reducing latency, getting getting uh, network applications deployed closer to all end, end users, but also increasing um, resilience within the network so that you're not overly dependent just on one network node or one city, but distributing your uh, your assets to multiple locations to to reduce um, vulnerability. So in my last episode, we talked about the transport market, submarine cables, uh, the data center market, I imagine, has followed the development of the transport market where there are new submarine cables. You're also likely to see new data centers. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and, and in some cases, the, the, the data center nodes lead where the transport uh, networks are going ah, as well. So it can, it can be both directions. It could be both. Right, yeah. Yes, got it. absolutely. Absolutely. All right, so John, I can't let you go until I ask you this question. We are both in the Washington, D.C. area. We frequently see this quote in various local news sources that 70% of the internet passes through Ashburn every day, which is ludicrous. Right? Yes. <laughs> we recently saw yes. one. Um, we recently saw one that uh, that uh, Ashburn contains the majority of the world's data centers, which is far more ludicrous than the previous statistics. Yes. But I, I still want to ask data center alley uh -huh. in Northern Virginia. Um, is it still the largest concentration of data centers in the world, even if it's not a majority of traffic or data centers? Is it the largest single concentration? Believe it or not, yes. Okay, good. Um, Northern Virginia is the largest data center market in the world. It is, it's absolutely massive. 
and um, by our, our latest estimates, it's it's probably about 30% bigger than the next largest market. That is significant. Tokyo. Yeah. So it's significant. So these quotes so aren't very totally big. off base conceptually, just, just uh, in terms conceptually, of Conceptually, no. Yeah. Uh, yes, exactly. In terms of, you know, that, that, that uh, overall concentration that is, like you said, absurdly exaggerated in terms of the amount of dependence that the world has on these markets. Um, but uh, it really, there, there are a lot of incredibly important major data center and network nodes around the world. Uh, Northern Virginia is just one of them, but, but yes, it is the biggest. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you so much for that. That was super useful. And um, I should say, if folks want to know more about our data center research, you blog for us at blog.telegeography.com and can always find out more there. All right. Thanks very much for having me. Cool. Cheers. The life cycle of a YouTube video. To close out each episode, we're using an example of a YouTube creator who has made and uploaded a video to be sent to their dozens or millions of fans around the world. For our data center episode, we will focus on where it actually goes. As before, our content creator has edited their video and uploaded it to their YouTube account. For this example, let's say the content creator is me and I'm uploading a video of me explaining the internet. I live in Western Loudoun County in Northern Virginia, which is conveniently down the street from Data Center Alley. Because I'm so close, my incumbent telco broadband provider most certainly has fiber directly into a neutral data center, such as one of the many Equinix facilities. If I lived farther away or had an alternative provider, perhaps my video would first go to a neutral data center to get passed onto a backbone provider's network before finding Google. However, my broadband provider likely has a cross connect or is in a meet me room where they can pass my traffic directly to Google who manages my YouTube account. Then it is likely that Google is going to store my video in their own data center, which is probably right down the street from where that traffic got exchanged. So now my video is sitting on a server full of other YouTube videos in a rack somewhere down in a long hallway inside one of Google slash Alphabet's two Loudoun data centers. From there, Google will determine where it needs to cache my video based on the geographic distribution of our viewership and likely send it around the world via transport network backbones to its other data centers that are closest to the biggest mass of viewers. Well, that wraps up our data center episode. Make sure you tune in for episode four, where we're gonna tie together data centers with the cloud when we answer the question, what is the cloud? Thanks for listening. Telegeography Explains the Internet comes from the experts here at Telegeography. It's edited and produced by Jane Miller, and it's hosted by me, Greg Bryan. To learn more about our data, jump over to telegeography.com, and we'll see you on the internet.